You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Okay, so uh, the topic for today is climate change and identity politics. And the way that I, I, I have a little time here to present both my thoughts on this, uh, theoretical ideas, um, and also some of the research that I've done. It's a bit of a challenge. I'm going to, um, yeah, but I'll try. <laughs> So climate change and identity politics, for me, it's more uh, about climate governance. And I also uh, think of identity in, uh, in the terms of intersectional analysis. I'll come back to that, intersectionality, because it's a way to think about identity as less fixed, more fluid. And as you know, identity categories uh, differ. So you have uh, maybe gender and race, which is kind of... Uh, have more of a permanence, but if you look at age, you look at profession or economic status, that is much more fluid in different ways. Uh, anyway, I'll return to that. But I need to do make a short historical reflection on climate change as a governance issue and just point out a few things. Uh, initially, and I would say for quite a long time up until I don't know, maybe, well, in the early 2000s, maybe this changed, but prior to that, it was mainly uh, about science, about natural science. It was meteorolog meteorologists, the climate scientists, earth system sciences that talked about this as a global issues in these kind of um, visualizations, we can say. Um, so that's how it was approached. And uh, very little was said about the human impact or about behavior, people, and so forth. And we can say, for example, uh, you see a picture here, an illustration of geological eras. And we are now, uh, and this is mainly the, again, earth system sciences that have argue that we're now in something called the Anthropocene. I'm sure you've heard about this concept, that we're now in a new, um, in a new era, uh, which is beyond the Holocene. We flourished in the Holocene, and now we made, uh, as humans, such an impact on the Earth that we can talk about geological consequences, they argue. Uh, so they are saying that humans matter, but I would say that they are uh, very wrong in many aspects of that because it's too universalizing, too generalizing to talk about humans in, the, in this context. They matter, people, groups, behavior, choices matter too, as does climate science, but we know that how it matters in the kind of human context or for humans, uh, it's about really deep injustices. Uh, so there are injustices regarding the responsibilities for climate change. Uh, so our affluence in the North in some way was dependent on uh, exploiting the resources and uh, particular fossil fuel burning. So the responsibilities are deeply unjust. The effects of climate change are also deeply unjust, that it affects, uh, for example, we can say maybe more vulnerable people, also in the South, uh, maybe more than uh, us in the North. Uh, 
it is, there are injustices regarding the resources that we can use and we are uh, that are available, for example, for climate adaptation. There are deep injustices in terms of knowledge. What kind of knowledge gets to dominate in the climate governance debate, for example? And finally, there are deep injustices in the issue of representation. That is, who gets to decide about these issues? And then I don't only mean the global uh, climate agreements, but all the way when it trickles down even to local level. I will have examples of that. But we can say these deep injustices have been largely ignored. And jumping into one specific example that I have from a study that I did with Gunhilder Magnusdotter, the, uh, the data is from 2012, we uh, decided uh, that we would look at climate governance in Scandinavia from the perspective of gender. So we highlighted gender in the study. But uh, what we noted uh, was that there was, we could say, a fairly high gender equal representation. And you can see this, the top is uh, the, the men and the dark is the women. So you can see the, these are different agencies that work on, on climate change and are irresponsible for those areas. Um, but we saw there was a fairly high gender equal representation, sometimes an over-representation, if we are thinking 40-60 to be some kind of idea of what's equal. And there was also, we could say, then a critical mass of women in this field. But when we looked uh, into documents, to strategies, and even did some interviews, we found that there was really no e evidence of gender awareness. Um, there was really little evidence of, of thinking about injustices, or even actually behaviors, or yeah, anything that had to do with people, really, was very much downplayed or, or even invisible. So why? Well, our project didn't take us further than to say a few things. We th one of the things that came out was that it was about ignorance, in a sense, or we could say lack of knowledge about these conditions. But then we also kind of had to speculate a little bit, and we thought maybe it could have to do with the interest of the elite decision makers not to highlight these issues, and we'll come back to why that might be. Or, and it's probably for us the most likely explanation, that this uh, is more complicated and there are uh, embedded power relations and norms in these institutions that we didn't see. Uh, so that was one uh, example of how this has been ignored. Uh, I said to you that I'm interested in studying identities that um, is the title of, the, of this seminar, but I like to do it through intersectionality as an uh, analytical lens on power. Uh, this is a critique. Uh, it's it's a, a critical perspective, so you can critique the power relations in climate governance. And it's a, a, a way to ask questions, kind of like a methodology even, uh, about power relations. And uh, what interests me here, uh, particularly, is the relational um, 
thinking around power, that it's a relation. Uh, and we can focus both on privilege and exclusion or marginalization, and we can see how they relate. And uh, as we have developed intersectionality, it's not only about individual lives, but social practices, institutional arrangements, and norms as well. And uh, intersectionality comes from a place, so I just want to say a few words where that comes from. It's, it's, it's a politics. One thing, it's a politics. So it comes from uh, a critique of feminism. So it comes from a feminist theory and women's studies, we can say. Uh, where the, uh, a critique of white feminism emerged from um, anti-racist and post-colonial movements and thinking. And we also see a, a parallel on ecofeminist and an, uh, critical animal studies debate on these issues that uh, um, have, it's on the political. We see a picture here of Audre Lorde, very important. Uh, she was a... Um, a black feminist or black woman. Uh, and so we see how gender and race comes in as a power relation. And we can also maybe, I don't know about her economic status, but we could imagine there was a class dis distinction too. And she was very concerned about this fact that if you focus on one single parameter. So comes from politics, but I do it more as analytics, right? So it's an analytical framework for, for me. And, and it's, the focus is on difference and differences rather than identity as, as given. Um, but it's really important to note that the idea is that power is interlinked and reinforced that way. So this is kind of uh, the important aspects of it. So, what needs to be done to curb climate change? Well, uh, there are of course many things, but to mi mitigate uh, climate change, we need to reduce carbon emissions uh, through many things, but uh, uh, change transport patterns is one aspect. Reduce uh, emissions from the energy res intense resource industry, which is a large global emitters, emitter. Uh, we need to change lifestyle land use patterns, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I've worked mainly on the two top areas myself, so I'll, I'll give some examples from that. But that's not all we need. I, I also think we need new thinking, visions and alternatives, even uh, technical innovations and social innovations, possibly. And, uh, and I also argue that it's, it's really perhaps not a win-win. Everything is perhaps not a win-win, but there will also be conflicts that could emerge. And an intersectional perspective allows us to kind of see this and, and maybe be more prepared or, or see where we need to make compensations. We can come back to that theme later. So I'm going to make an example of a... Um, intersectional dimension or how you can do an intersectional analysis and what happens to this. So transport is very important area to reduce emissions in, right? Because you have CO2 emissions from cars. So 
If we go to some, this is a project that I uh, work with here, Lena Heselius and Lena uh, smedfeld rusquist and Christian Dumain. Uh, and this is actually from one separate study that they do with, where they have some numbers that I can use here. But they just looked at uh, car kilometers, the ones that have the most car kilometers. And the, yeah, well, it was more of a range, but the fewest car kilometers. So I've picked out the two, right? So if we look at them in terms of who they are, we can see the intersectional categories at work here because the ones that emit, uh, or sorry, that drive the most car kilometers is a man, um, it's middle-aged, so we got the age uh, parameter, living in rural areas, so we have place. Gender, age, and place. The fewest car kilometers is a woman, younger, uh, living in urban areas, with also with low income. So we got four gender, or sorry, four intersectional categories that interact here. So, yeah, okay. Another kind of research that we've looked at and integrated here is the thumbs up and the thumbs down, which represents uh, the views, uh, so it's more about attitudes. Uh, so while the other behavior attitudes uh, is the thumbs up or thumbs down, and it shows that <clears throat> women, uh, younger, living in urban areas, low income, are more um, apt to change their behavior. They're more open to legislation relating to the environment and to climate. Whereas the top, uh, the many car kilometers, is much more negative towards uh, making changes, introducing taxes, or whatever it is. So their attitudes are more down and the other one's up. And this is, of course, a problem uh, in many ways. But one of the problems is if we, on top of that, juxtapose uh, representation. And we see that uh, in decision-making bodies and planning bodies around these issues, uh, there is a dominance of men, not necessarily living in rural areas, but um, we've done a, a study, it just published uh, two days ago, we got it published, where we look at municipalities in Sweden, all the municipalities in Sweden, uh, and we look particularly at the transport or relevant committees all over the country then, right? And it's uh, very male-dominated. So it's about uh, average 27% women only. Uh, and uh, in some municipalities, there's 100% male dominance. So an example. I'll move on. Uh, another example, example is from uh, other types of research that I do. Uh, and uh, we need innovation, I said. I argued that we need new alternatives, new visions, and possibly also innovations. But in the, uh, one area that I've studied is energy-intensive resource industries, steel, mine, pulp and paper, cement, uh, these industries, which uh, pollute very much. Uh, and we, when you looked at it, when we studied these industries, we saw that they were perceived as very old-fashioned. They're very male-dominated, in part possibly related to the f fact that the 
science and technology uh, field is very male dominated. So engineering knowledge is also predominant in these industries. At the same time as it's uh, sometimes it's local, it's also very globally connected to the market. So it's kind of placed in an interesting uh, position. But this is of course also recognized in the industries that there is this problem as they're trying to um, do their best maybe even to, to uh, reduce CO2 emissions. But they have very difficulty in recruiting, right? So the, to, to recruit diverse, diversely is very difficult for this industry, in part because of the way that they, they look. Uh, another field that we're just uh, looking at is green innovations and patents, and this is in a Nordic project. And we see that it's a, sm a smaller group of highly educated, technically educated, risk-taking men white men too, uh, to 90% <clears throat> that are working in this particular uh, field that we're, we're studying or my colleagues are studying. But when we look at uh, patents uh, to women innovators, it's very low. So there's only, um, this goes for Europe, but Finland and Denmark about 13%, in Sweden 9% of the patents green or other, uh, are given to women innovators. And this is despite that we have uh, in the academia around 25% women. So if we're looking for innovation, this is what we're getting at this point. Is it enough? Maybe, but uh, it surely is a, a something that we could uh, discuss. Um, so. Intersectional analysis of climate change governance suggests that we understand then uh, power as relational, as categories of difference, um, <clears throat> but also that we recognize how intersectional power not only relates to groups in society, but also to governance, to policy and institutions. Um, <clears throat> and I think we could work with insights to question pri privilege then and to uh, increase inclusion because the way that I said before that it might bring in also alternative knowledges, alternative visions and ways of thinking that might be needed in this time. Uh, so thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>